25 years ago, in November 1997, the Spice Girls released their sophomore record, Spice World. The album was a smash hit and went five times platinum. It solidified their position as the best-selling girl group of all time. But they're certainly not the only girl group. Destiny's Child dominated the charts in the late 90s and early 2000s. Sixty years earlier, the girl group phenomenon arguably began with the Andrews sisters. There have been more recent girl groups too, like Little Mix. This is a shout out to my ex. And the K-pop superstars Blackpink. The 1A Record Club is exploring the history and evolution of girl groups, starting with the Spice Girls. A 25th anniversary edition of their album Spice World has been released. It features live remixes and renditions of some of their biggest hits. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We've got a lot to get into after the break. Stay with us. Let's get into it. Maria Sherman is a culture writer and the author of Larger Than Life, a history of boy bands from New Kids on the Block to BTS. The last time she was on 1A, we discussed boy bands. Maria, welcome back. Hi, thanks so much for having me. And also joining us is Jennifer Harlan. She's a special projects editor at the New York Times, and she recently wrote about the influence of the Spice Girls alongside reporter Alicia Hardasani Gupta. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Okay, so let's go back in time, 25 years ago, which is kind of amazing. November 1997. Jennifer, how big of a deal were the Spice Girls 25 years ago when their second album dropped? It's really uh, hard to, it's hard to talk about it in terms that don't sound like huge hyperbolic exaggeration, but they really were kind of the biggest thing in the entire world at that point. Um, Their first album, uh, Spice had come out just the year before in 1996 and had immediately become a global sensation. Wannabe, their first single, was a number one hit in 37 different countries. They were touring, uh, traveling all over the world. Um, and it's kind of unusually, especially for a British band at the time, remember this is pre-internet really, and definitely pre-streaming, they were a big hit, not just in the UK where they were from, but in the US, in Japan, really all over the place. You couldn't go anywhere without experiencing Spice Mania. They were on Pepsi cans, they were on lollipops, they were, their music videos were on TV, and they had this extremely passionate fan base, particularly among um, young girls. And teens. So Spice World, that's the second album, sold 14 million copies worldwide. What kind of a splash did that record make, Jennifer? It really cemented their place as the like vanguard of this new wave of um, sort of call like teen 
teen pop and the sound of the the late 90s there there had been girl groups as you mentioned before before them but they had all kind of followed a particular model you had a lot of people all kind of dressed similarly you had one one singer who was usually the lead and the other girls kind of supported them and the Spice Girls had really broken the mold on this they offered this new model for what a girl group could look like they wrote all their songs together they divided up the lyrics equally so that everyone everyone was singing everyone got opportunities to have a solo no one was the lead and they all were very individual in that extended with everything from their outfits and how they dressed to their personas and the nicknames, which were actually given to them by a journalist at a British magazine, Top of the Pops. But the girls, rather than being insulted by the names, which were meant to kind of belittle and make fun of them, they decided to embrace them. And so they were really offering an an alternative that you hadn't seen before of a girl group that wasn't about spotlighting one person or about competition among the members, but really about celebrating the individuality of each member of the group. And this idea that you could be in a group where everyone was very, was very different, but everyone was cool in their own way. Everyone was having fun. And there really was this emphasis on fun and friendship in their music that was different from what we'd seen before. And I think was part of what made them so intensely popular and and very different from what was available in the rest of the pop music scene. Well, Maria, we're not going to just talk about the Spice Girls this hour, but also the phenomenon of girl groups. What do you think makes a girl group? I appreciate that question so much because I think there's a sort of association with just if there's a group of women performing, then that is textbook girl group. And it's a little bit more complicated and nuanced than that. Um, And I think it's identified by a certain number of characteristics. A girl group isn't a duo, so you need at least three members. A girl group is made of girls and women, so there's a certain gender implication there. Um, And I think maybe most definitively, a girl group is a vocal group. Um, You'll see associations and people trying to track this history, which is complicated and and decades and decades long, of... um, Seeing any performers of like an all-female band, you mentioned uh, Bikini Kill in the introduction, as being a girl group. And I I think that's a little bit of a misnomer because uh, if you were to sort of flip the genre or the gender script, excuse me, there's a bit of a false equivalency. You don't see a group of all men instrumentalists performing uh, probably rock music or or country music as a boy band. They are uh, just a band. So in in sort of my view, a girl group is a vocal group of of women. primarily performing pop, but also R&B and, and rock. And, you know, there isn't a specific uh, genre that they need to perform either. Well, you trace the origins of the girl group back to World War II. Here are the Andrews sisters. He was a famous trumpet man from all Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was a top man at his craft. But then his number came up and he was gone with the draft. He's in the army now, a blowin' reveille. He's the boogie-woogie bugle boy of Company B. They made him blow a bugle for his Uncle Sam. That was the 1941 song, Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. Who were the Andrews sisters, Maria? What a tongue twister that song is, isn't it? Uh, The Andrews sisters were a group of sisters um, who performed this song that became an absolute hit. Um, And and I think, you know, before this, obviously, there were a group of of women singing. But I think this is a really great place to start the girl group phenomenon. Because when we think of that term, quite often, depending on your age (laughs) and and your experience, you'll associate girl groups with the 60s, uh, which we will absolutely 
really get into. There are a million incredible groups, um, sort of the, as this like post-war fascination. But the reality is it started before that, before World War II. And um, I think what's so fascinating about girl group history is you can look at some of the largest acts of a time and sort of um, trace the trajectory of what was happening culturally, in the country, um, sort of socially, politically, this is a song that is obviously a performance of patriotism. It is about uh, a boy who plays a bugle before being drafted. And, and it sort of um, establishes that, or foreshadows rather, U.S. involvement in World War II, right? This is 1941. So it, it very much um, is sort of an exercise in, in that patriotism and, and sort of establishes where everybody's heads were at at the time. Uh, Jennifer, the Andrews sisters were, were sisters, but how did the Spice Girls get together? Well, it's an interesting story. So they originally were... Um, what we would sort of we'll call a prefabricated or prefab group. There was a, a father and son music management team, Chris and Bob Herbert, who basically decided that they looked around at the music scene in the UK, which was very dominated by these male guitar forward bands. And one of the biggest acts in the UK at the time was a boy band, um, Take That. And they decided they wanted to make a female version of Take That. So they, in 1994, they put an ad in the newspaper asking for ambitious, street smart young women who could sing and dance to come and audition. And they cast... Um, who would end up being the five members of the Spice Girls. And they rented this house in Maidenhead and put the girls up there and paid for. They gave them singing lessons, dance lessons, brought in songwriters to do songwriting sessions with them, recorded some demos, um, organized a showcase so that they could perform for people in the music industry. Um, But they had this very kind of traditional idea for how they wanted the group to work. They wanted them all to dress alike and and coordinate and kind of pick someone who was going to be the lead. And their plan basically ended up backfiring on them because once the girls were all in the house together and started to get to know each other and work together and become not just bandmates, but genuinely friends, they realized, hey, we don't need these dudes telling us what to do. This doesn't seem natural to us. We are all very, we have very different personalities. We have very different styles. It feel it doesn't feel right to us to try and homogenize that. Mm-hmm. And so one night they went to the management's office. They took the master recordings for the songs that they had written and recorded already. And then they piled into uh, Jerry Hallowell, um, now Jerry Horner, Ginger Spice's Fiat Uno, and drove off into the night with them. And from that moment on, they, while they had started as this kind of prefab band that were cast, from that moment on, they were really in charge of their own destiny, their own music, their own image. And because they had done this showcase while they were still with the Herberts, they'd started to get a little bit of buzz in the music industry already. And so they were in this position where they had these great songs. They had this vision for who they wanted to be. And so they started going around town auditioning managers. And it was really important to them that they find someone who had worked with female artists or female bands before and understood, um, wouldn't really understand what they were trying to to do and also someone who knew not just the UK music market but the American music market the global um, music market they really wanted to be um, as Victoria Beckham would say bigger than Purcell which was a kind of dishwashing detergent they wanted to be not just big for a band but big as a global sensation. And they ended up deciding on that they set their sights on Simon Fuller, who at the time was managing Annie Lennox. Um, So they felt that he understood how to work with a 
female office, female artist. And as he describes it, they they stormed into his office talking a mile a minute. They sang wannabe for him and he was sold. And that was it. And from that moment, they were they were off to the races. Well, you got this tweet from Liz who says, back in high school in the mid 90s, I loved the Spice Girls. Ironically, now my love is pure. Well, we're at a moment in time when we're reexamining how critics and journalists treat female celebrities. Here's some of an interview the Spice Girls did back in the 90s. Why do you think five girls have made such a fantastic impression on the charts? Why? I don't know. I mean, I think that we think maybe it could be because there's so many boy bands and so many boy acts. I think girls like to see some other girls doing it for a change. That was Mel C, more commonly known then as Sporty Spice. Maria, when you when you look back, what do you notice about how the Spice Girls were treated by the press? Uh, that they were sort of demonized <laughs> and and sort of spoken and, and marginalized simply because of their gender, um, you know. And and I'm sure Jennifer has read countless <laughs> uh, reviews and and sort of interviews with them where you'll have a male critic sort of describing even their sort of personalities of of being sporty spice, baby spice, as um, indicative of certain male fantasies, as if the Spice Girls created themselves for men, uh, which feels now so counterintuitive, but sort of was the reality of the situation that. And um, the number one argument, though, and, and it's been mentioned a couple of times in this conversation, is that they were f- formulaic, that they were manufactured and therefore um, should be devalued um, for that reason. But as, as Jennifer has outlined in, in incredible detail, that they, there was an expression of um, autonomy within them that is not only uncommon for pop music in general, but like with boy bands as well. There isn't an example that I can think of as somebody who's been living in that world for so long of of, uh, of a boy band sort of grabbing their masters and challenging their managers in a direct way, with the exception of, of um, maybe financial abuses that went to court. So it's really sort of astonishing what they were able to do simply by believing in themselves and, um, you know, talking over interviewers who were sort of um, unloading casual sexism uh, upon them. And I think a lot of that also has to do with the fact that this is a girl group we're talking about and not a soloist. There's something very empowering and and you're sort of able to defend yourself a bit better um, with another with other women um, sort of supporting you as opposed to the sort of soloist we saw in the early 2000s, something like a Britney Spears or Christina Aguilera in, in the big tabloid era. Here's a message we got from Sherry in Raleigh, North Carolina. My favorite girl group is Destiny's Child. I think that was actually one of the first albums I ever got and listened to on my own. All I can think of is Bills, Bills, Bills. At first we thought it all real cool. Taking me places I ain't never been. But now you're getting comfortable. Ain't doing those things you did no more. You're slowly making me... Okay, Sherry, go on and sing that song. <laughs> I'm Jen White. We'll hear more from you and our guests in a moment. Drive it all day and don't fill up the tank. And you have the audacity to even come and step to me. Ask to hold some money from me until you get your check next week. You try for live. Let's get back to the conversation. Uh, Jennifer, I want you to remind us what was happening in 1997 when Spice World dropped and what that meant for the Spice Girls' success at that particular moment in time. Well, they talked about the idea of um, both a sophomore album and also the movie uh, Spice World, which um, the album essentially acted as a, a soundtrack to the movie from the very beginning. It was part of their sort of plan for world domination. Um, but it was also really a test for them. Their first album had been such a 
huge global success that there was a question, I think as you often have when a band has a really successful debut, of whether they would be able to replicate that and whether their um, sophomore effort would live up to the hype of the first one. Um, so I think there was a lot of pressure on them to try and reach the same heights of the success of Spice and Wannabe. Um, and they really did succeed in that. I mean, a lot of the songs on Spice World, Spice Up Your Life, Stop, ended up being some of their biggest hits as well. Um, but what's also interesting about the Spice Girls is that that was really the the end of their height. They had this huge success with Spice World, the album, Spice World, the movie. But then by a year later, Ginger Spice had left the band. They'd parted ways with their manager and they did release one more album after that. But they that it was a really a, a lightning in the bottle moment mm-hmm. um, where they were on the top on top of the world. And then at just as quickly as it had kind of come into existence, it, it was gone. We asked you about your favorite girl groups and many of you mentioned the Supremes, who are also mine. Hi, I'm Julie from Venice, Florida. Thinking about girls' groups, I gotta say, it's it's a biggie. Stop in the name of love before you break my heart. Hi, it's Sonny from Okefenokee, Georgia. And here's one everybody knows. Baby, baby. Thanks for those messages. Okay, Maria, I am a Detroiter, born and raised. How important are the Supremes in the evolution of the girl group? Oh, I think you should school me. I consider <laughs> the Supremes I consider the Supremes to be the girl group exemplar. If if Spice Girls are the best selling girl group of all time, maybe the Supremes are the most successful in terms of legacy of hits. When you think of, of Motown, you think of the Supremes. Um, it's that incredibly delicious combination of gospel and rhythm and blues and doo-wop and pop. You see their uniform looks. You see Diana Ross. Um, it's just, uh, I, it's sort of hard to speak of, of their incredible influence in, in this movement. This is also happening, you know, their heydays of the 60s. We think of this as the sort of golden era of girl groups largely because of the Supremes. Um, and maybe to tie it a little bit to the boy band story, uh, since that is my authority, I often make the case that the reason so much of the early Beatles songwriting is so... Um, intoxicating is because they sort of took a lot of 1950s rock and roll, that blunt force, and married it with the addictive harmonies of stuff they learned from the Supremes. Mm-hmm. Um, Mary, There's a wonderful quote from Mary Wilson where she says she saw Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers after hearing Whitey Fools Fall in Love, um, that 1956 song that I consider one of the first boy band songs, and she saw them and she wanted to be Frankie Lyman and, of course, you know, became much bigger. Yeah. Um, so there's this wonderful history of, like, them sort of related uh, and in relation to boy bands but growing larger in size and having this incredible legacy. How could you not love the Supremes? Style, grace, elegance, the whole package. Well, great. Grammy Award-winning singer Adele is a big fan of the Spice Girls. It was girl power and it was these five ordinary girls who just like did so well and just like got out. Yeah. And I was like, I want to get out. I don't want to get out of, but I want to get out. And it was a really important period of my life. But didn't there. you used to have like Spice Girls parties? Yeah, on, like, on my own. And I would do, I mean, my 10th birthday was, just, there were five of us and yeah. all Spice Girls. But I used to do like... Who were you? I was always Jerry. Really? Yeah. Love that. And then she left. She left the band. It was, that was the first time I was truly heartbroken. 
That's Adele speaking to late-night talk show host James Corden. We also got this tweet from Terrence who says, Spice Girls was my life, and I still love the music, movies, dolls, and culture the Spice Girls created. Let's not shy away from the fact that I can't remember another racially diverse group from back then, too. And as much as I love the Spice Girls, I saw similar formulas in the K-pop group To Anyone. Uh, Jennifer, I want to first tackle the, the first part of Terrence's tweet about the the racial makeup of the group. How unique was that at the time? Uh, very unique. I mean, a lot of the um, band, the groups that Maria has mentioned, if you think about the Renats, the Supremes, um, Bananarama, TLC, they do tend to be racially homogenous. And so it was, I don't think it was something that the, the girls or the members of the Spice Girls saw as unusual at the time, but was really different from any of the other groups that were on the pop music scene then. And and what do you think that meant for the music industry at the time? Did it maybe open up some thinking about what not just girl groups could look like, but what pop music and other genres could look like too? I don't know that it had sort of a, a very immediate kind of effect, but I think it did start of start to crack open that door and start to break down the kind of silos between between genres um, that you would see in pop music and you start to see a little bit of more of crossover between pop, R&B, rock, and that leads to greater diversity and representation of, of all kinds, racial and otherwise, within the music industry. And I don't know if you could say that the Spice Girls were like the band that started that, but it was definitely a part of it, especially given how visible and how popular they were globally that they were also a group where they were they weren't all white young women and they um, really embraced and celebrated that. Now in that tweet Terrence also mentioned K-pop groups. Uh, he specifically mentioned to anyone girl groups from Korea are becoming increasingly popular in America and worldwide. Here's one of Blackpink's new songs, Pink Venom. pop girl groups unique from Western ones? I would say it's, it's more indicative of how K-pop is unique to consider in relation to Western pop music. The songs are usually way more maximalist than a lot of Western pop. There are multiple different harmonies, multiple different melodic structures. Um, but I, the, the overarching fascination, I guess, is the fact that we have a girl group like Blackpink, who is absolutely massive on a global scale. And that's something that hasn't really been seen since the sort of Spice Girls um, Destiny's Child era um, that is not to underscore the successes of something like Danity Kane and Pussycat Dolls and maybe more recently Little Mix and, and Fifth Harmony who we mentioned earlier but who a uh, girl group on, on par with this sort of massive um, ubiquity uh, more or less. Uh, they are the first girl group to be on the cover of Rolling Stone for example since Destiny's Child and, um, and the Spice Girls. I'd also say that they uh, sort of appeal to a wide range of different demographics. If you go to see Blackpink, you're going to see a lot of different genders, um, people from different countries all over the world. And that's kind of interesting because, you know, in the girl groups of my childhood, it would be a lot of young women uh, that that they sort of appealed to. So there's certainly a shift happening there. Uh, Blackpink is fascinating because they 
also sort of appeal to many different people from many different walks of life because, um, you know, they're Korean, but they also have a Thai member, a member from Australia, a member from New Zealand. So there's sort of a cross-border um, appeal to them as well. Um, and, and they're, you know, it's catchy hooks at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are hearing from lots of you about Lil Mix. Rewind tweeted, don't leave out Little Mix. And Amy tweeted, my daughter loves Little Mix and I borrowed their music from her. She had to turn me on to them, but that's what daughters are for, right? Well, let's listen to a song that topped the charts in the mid-2010s from that girl group, Little Mix. That was the 2015 song, Black Magic. Jennifer, how did Little Mix follow and break from the Spice Girls model? Well, they're uh, just one of many examples of the um, the bands that really have talked about taking inspiration from the Spice Girls. And I think particularly the fact that they're also from the UK like, and were part of this Spice Girls generation that really grew up listening to them and also seeing in them... Um, a model of what a a girl group and a female um, artist could be like. I loved that um, Adele clip that you played earlier because she's also someone who has talked about that the first group or band that she saw that made her want to pick up a microphone and think I could do this too was the Spice Girls. Mm. (laughs) Um, And so I think it's, you can really see uh, Little Mix and other, and a lot of other artists like that, including Adele, including Sam Smith, including Billie Eilish as part of a a continuation of the kind of legacy of the Spice Girls and this generation of young, we've talked a lot about young girls, but also a lot of young members of the LGBTQ community who really um, were really drawn to them and celebrated them and then have kind of, as they've grown up and become the next generation of people coming into the industry have really followed in their footsteps. Maria, you were a big fan of Fifth Harmony during that same time as well. What did you love about them? I've always wanted to root for girl groups. So the fact that there was one that was sort of in our face, especially at the time they were, it must be mentioned that they existed around the same time as One Direction, shared uh, not management, but a record label. They were both sort of signed to Simon Cowell's Psycho Records. Um, they were having a real success and, and sort of bleeding over into the mainstream pop space out of, outside of the sort of um, lane reserved for teen pop performers in a way that was really exciting to see. Um, and they also were racially and ethnically rather diverse in, in a way that was really sort of exciting to see. You know, as a young Latina, I could I could root for other Latinas in a girl group, um, which isn't something that uh, is, is very common in, in the American music market. Um, and they also had hits, the freelancer anthem work from home, <laughs> as an example. <laughs> Jennifer, when you, when you think about the legacy of the Spice Girls and Spice World, and you think about where we are today, with girl groups, uh, do they have the same cachet as they used to have? I think you've seen sort of a a blurring of those lines. It's funny because Marie talked about this kind of the generational cycle of boy bands and there hasn't traditionally been that same kind of cyclical nature with girl groups. But um, I do think you've seen more openness to uh, this idea of girl groups as being like something that the music industry wants to invest time and resources in. For a long time, there was this 
I think, incorrect idea that boy bands would appeal to boys because they wanted to be like the boys and they would appeal to girls because they wanted to be with the boys, but that girl groups would never be as successful because, well, girls would like them, boys wouldn't be interested in a bunch of girls singing. And I, I think we've seen that break down a bit and shift. There's still more uh, more progress that we need to to make, but um, I do think you've seen that that the playing field leveled a bit more. Maria, any up-and-coming girl groups you're keeping your eye on? Yes. Well, I I don't think you can call Blackpink up-and-coming at this point in time. Soon they will rule us all. But I I think Twice (laughs) is another K-pop girl group. There's so many in the the K-pop arena. It's really And it's really exciting to see them tour the U.S. because for a long time they wouldn't. You would mostly see support for K-pop boy bands. Um, In the sort of Western tradition, there is the U.K. girl group Flow, uh, who remind me very much of the early 2000s, sort of TLC influence. Um, They have the song Immature that interpolates Beyonce's Kitty Cat. SZA loves them. That should be enough of an argument uh, there. And then, of course, there's also Citizen Queen, who were formed by Scott of Pentatonix to be a sort of acapella group, which is interesting because acapella is very much a thing that comes and goes in waves on the Internet, um, you know, with Pitch Perfect (laughs) sort of promoting it as a thing that everybody enjoyed to the sea shanty guys on TikTok last year. It's, it's sort of like at, at some point we all decide that we love acapella again. We're very impressed by the performance. Citizen Queen are some incredible vocalists. They really are. They really are. That's Maria Sherman. She's a culture writer and the author of Larger Than Life, a history of boy bands from New Kids on the Block to BTS. Also with us, Jennifer Harlan, a special projects editor at the New York Times. Today's producers were Jorgelina Manarea and Avery J.C. Kleinman. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.